in a perfect world, the specter of that perfect white cishet mom wouldn't be there at all. That we wouldn't be tasked with defining ourselves against or in opposition to that ideal because she wouldn't be the biggest thing in the room. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. And today I am bringing back a new fan favorite, Sarah Louise Peterson, for another installment of Momfluencer Talk. Sarah is a writer based in New Hampshire. Her essays about feminism, domesticity, and motherhood have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, and many more places. And she is currently working on a book called Momfluenced, which examines the performance of motherhood through the multi-layered phenomenon of mommy influencer culture. Sarah came on a few weeks ago and we talked about the value and visibility of momfluencer bodies and particularly thin, straight, cisgender, white momfluencers. And you guys had a ton to say about that episode. I got really interesting reader responses. And yeah, hearing your thoughts and questions made us both realize there is a lot more here. There may even be more Momfluencer episodes beyond this. This might be like a new subgenre of the Burnt Toast podcast, which I'm really excited about. So there's a lot of questions we could get into. And I think one of the biggest ones is, should we even be talking about Momfluencers? What does it mean when we center this experience of motherhood? So it's a great conversation. Sarah and I get into many different kind of neighborhoods of Momfluencing. We're really getting away from the thin white ideal this time. And there's lots of awesome people you'll want to follow. Everybody is linked in the transcript on the Substack website. So you can click the link in your episode description for that. And here is Sarah. But first, a quick break. So if this was a normal podcast, the music playing would let you know that I am about to start talking about my favorite new meal kit service or my favorite new diet app. But this isn't a normal podcast, so we don't do that here. Instead, I keep Burnt Toast ad and sponsor free with the help of paid subscribers. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year, and this gets you a whole bunch of great perks, including subscriber-only bonus episodes where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You'll also get all of the reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column delivered directly to your email. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. So just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, but you don't have $5 right now, remember you are also helping tons when you subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave a rating or review or just tell a friend about the show, or just keep listening. That works too. Whatever you're doing, thank you so much for being here and for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for being here again. Hi, Virginia. I'm so psyched to be here again. I am ready to talk momfluencers. Today, we want to talk about, is it possible for momfluencer culture to diversify, to represent different types of moms? And like, is that, should that even be the goal? I mean, my simple answer would be yes. There totally is room to follow moms that do not subscribe to a cishet, white, normative, nuclear family ideal. I have a chapter in my book that deals with the way in which so many moms have disrupted that narrative and have used their platforms in 
really cool, energizing ways to form legitimate communities where communities are really needed. And they have just such a different vibe than the stereotypical beachy waved white, you know, mom influencer, the, the type that we were talking about our last episode. It feels like a totally different world. I'm really like sort of heartened to know that this community is out there. I want to read this really great email I got from a listener after your episode because she is really articulating the problem in a way that I hadn't quite thought about before. So this is from Tori, and she writes, I noticed that at the beginning of this missive, you mentioned that you and Sarah are both cis straight moms with varying levels of thin privilege who gave birth. And at the end, you say that the next, quote, phase is seeing non-thin, non-white, non-straight, non-cisgender moms shifting the narrative. That struck a nerve with me. I'm a white cis lesbian with a non-binary partner. She gave birth to our child. Our kid is four and does not call either of her parents mom. In my partner's case, because that word is feminine and my partner is transmasculine. And in my case, mostly because even as a femme lesbian, I didn't want to embody the culture of motherhood that has been pretty toxic in my life and it didn't feel right for me. I read today's newsletter with some distance because I have found that even engaging with these momfluencers by critiquing them gives them too much space in my brain. I feel lucky that I do not generally feel mom guilt. I do not buy into most of the cultural pressures that straight white moms often struggle with, and I think that's because I had a way out from the beginning. The queer parents I know just don't even talk about it, and we don't compare ourselves. We talk about the absurd things our kids do and arguments with our partners, and we share gossip about queer celebrities, but we do not really participate in this aspiration stuff. I am grateful to queer people for offering that pathway out of straight white mom culture and also from the fat phobia of that culture. Many lesbians are fat and I'm grateful to my people for showing me how to love other women's interesting bodies as I learn to love my own. I guess I just want to gently suggest that all of this is optional. White moms, because I do think this is a whiteness problem, can stop putting their eyeballs on the momfluencers. I know that as a cultural critic, they're available for you to talk about since Instagram is a visual medium, etc. And there's comments and captions to analyze, but even the critique feels like adding fuel to the fire. I just want to offer up that focusing on people who do things differently, the ones you spoke about at the end of your conversation, is an even more powerful way of shifting around the way we talk about bodies. As a journalist, I'm sure you've engaged with the concept of deplatforming, and this is sort of a mini version of that. You have influenced yourself and lifting up the alternatives rather than continuing to reinforce white dominant culture, even by picking it apart, is especially effective. We're out here doing it differently, and a whole other parent culture is possible. Tori, thank you. I had a moment of sort of feeling like, oh, right, it is optional. It is easy to get just sucked into feeling like this is the paradigm we're in. I want to hear what your response was to reading that. I also love, love, loved that email. It reminded me of a conversation I had with Rebecca Tossig. She wrote a book called Sitting Pretty, and it's about her perspective as a disabled person. I interviewed her for the book, and we were talking about this big air quotes, ideal mother that we're all sort of defining ourselves against or aligning ourselves with or comparing ourselves to. And she was saying that in a perfect world, the specter of that perfect white cishet mom wouldn't be there at all. Mm -hmm. That we wouldn't be tasked with defining ourselves against or in opposition to that ideal. Mm -hmm because she wouldn't be the biggest thing in the room, that there would be freedom to define our own parenting journeys separate from the fetters of that looming ideal. Mm -hmm. And that whole 
notion of doing that feels so radical to me because the ideal white cishet mom does loom so large in our culture. So I love that she points out how optional it is because yes, 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 yes. Curating our feeds can be a really powerful tool. And I guess for me, from my personal perspective, I think it is still valuable to dissect where this ideal is coming from, look at who has the power in this narrative, where is the power coming from. I mean, you can't look at any of this without examining whiteness, first and foremost. So yeah, I think we have to really keep asking ourselves, like, how are we approaching this cultural criticism? Which voices are we centering? And I, you know, one piece of it that I think is worth noting is that for those of us who are white moms and who do check more of those boxes, this is kind of our work to do to hold the other white moms accountable, right? Like, we can't completely eradicate whiteness from motherhood, or maybe that is what we should be doing. But that feels very difficult. And in the process of doing that, can we ask more of white moms? You know, can we ask each other to reckon with these biases and to name these problems? That's not work I want to ask parents with marginalizations to do. That's not their job to come in and fix the white moms. And Sarah and I are the white moms. So Mm -hmm. we kind of have to be doing this work. But also... I'm really here for the idea of how do we get that specter of the thin white mom out of the room and how do we make space for these other voices? So something I was thinking about as you were talking, the popular narrative about how we talk about monster culture is the, oh, like, I'm just sick of comparing myself to the perfect mom in her perfect house. That is a really small concern in the grand scheme of things. Mm, Yes. That a lot of marginalized moms, like, they don't give a shit. Their biggest concern is not like having a kitchen that matches up to momfluencer standards. Right. So there is a way that white moms do perpetuate the ideal of whiteness in holding ourselves to those standards and prioritizing those standards as like worthy of our emotional and mental energy. Even in prioritizing our ability to separate from those standards. There's a strong parallel here with what we see in the fat community versus the, quote, body positive community, where body positivity has become reduced to this project of loving your body. Aubrey Gordon writes about this so well. Loving your body doesn't do shit for fat rights. It doesn't do shit for, you know, narrowing the pay gap or making clothing more accessible or stopping discrimination on airplanes, like, doesn't actually address these larger systemic ways that fat phobia is baked into our culture. And so I think this is a perpetual problem of whiteness and of white women that we take what is really this larger systemic issue and we make it all about, like, ourselves and our feelings. How does her clean kitchen make me feel? I feel like a bad mom. That's not what it's about at all. Totally. That's a classic tenet of specifically white feminism. I am not at all an expert on this, but when you're looking at intersectional feminism, you're looking at the community that is suffering the most and the most marginalized and working up to the Mm. fucking concerns about the clean countertops. Like, that's not where we start. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, I am so here for this. We'll do a quick shout out for Angela Garb's new book, Essential Labor. She gets at a lot of this really well. I'm hoping to have her on the podcast closer to when her book is out. But she really articulates the problems with white motherhood. And 
I think it's a must read for all white moms. I had a lot of moments reading that of looking in a mirror in an uncomfortable but necessary way, I think. Yeah, I also love her first book, Like Mother, best book on pregnancy I've ever read. She just looks at pregnancy from all different angles, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. I'm also going to plug Koa Beck's White Feminism. It was absolutely earth-shattering for me in terms of dismantling everything (laughs) I thought I knew about feminism and just understanding what white feminism is in general. I think a lot of us don't have that language. Okay, that's going on my next to read. And we will obviously link to all of these in the transcript for everyone who needs to be doing this reading with us. Okay, so we are going to talk about some case studies like we did last time. And this time we really are focusing on momfluencers who are not in that traditional skinny white mom box at all. I'm really interested in exploring how these people are challenging the norms and expectations of motherhood, but there are also times where they are upholding them. And what does that mean when we see that sort of disconnect? So should we start with... Oh, Nabella Noir. She's not, I guess, technically a full mom fluencer yet because she's pregnant with her first child. She comes from the world of YouTube beauty influencers. I did not know about her until she wrote a children's book this year called Beautifully Me, which I love. I actually interviewed Nabella on the Parents Instagram Live a few months ago. My younger daughter is obsessed with Beautifully Me. It's a really sweet picture book about a young Bangladeshi girl identifying all of the people in her lives who are fat phobic. You know, she hears her mom criticizing her body. She hears her dad criticizing his body. Her older sister's on a diet. And the story is sort of following her through the realization of that she can define beauty on her own terms, that she doesn't need to make herself smaller, that she should take up space. So it's a great kid's book. I think it's a must-have in all of our children's libraries. And yet, there is also this continual emphasis on the importance of beauty, both in the book and in Nabella's work. Her aesthetic on Instagram is all neutrals, everything in her house is white and brass handles and beautiful flower arrangements. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on her look and her makeup. There's this tension between I completely love her politics and love the way she is talking about challenging a lot of these norms, but then there is some upholding. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I'm looking at her feed and just the aesthetic tropes. She's checking all the boxes, the white kitchen. I mean, the all white everything (laughs) interior design wise, the caressing her pregnant stomach with like a beautiful dress, hyper feminine imagery, you know, the ultrasound photos, the just sort of the very joyful domestic goddess mother vibe. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, there's all of those tropes there. But I guess I wonder how fair or even productive it is to critique someone for adhering to those norms when like she didn't create them. They are super wrapped up in whiteness. But I guess I It just kind of feels like critiquing like a fish for swimming in the wrong water or something. Do you know what I mean? It's tricky. What do you think? No, I see that. The belly caressing in particular really moved me because she started caressing her belly like that when she was like nine weeks pregnant, like before she was really showing. I don't want to say whether she was showing or not, but 
you know, she, to the sort of just uh, casual viewer of her Instagram, did not look different to me because she is a larger person. And so she had a belly before. And so to see this woman who has a belly caressing her belly without apology, with so much joy and reverence for it at a time when often women are feeling like, am I showing yet? I'm not showing yet. I shouldn't look pregnant yet. Do I look too pregnant? You know, at a time when there's often still a lot of negativity about the belly, like we're sort of conditioned not to really celebrate the bump until it's like the perfect basketball bump on your tiny body. Mm -hmm. And so she's never going to have that perfect basketball bump on a tiny body. So that's not how she's built. And so there was something very radical and moving to me to see her like being so proud of that. And that does feel powerful for me in terms of representation, of particularly of pregnancy that doesn't look like the way we're told pregnancy needs to look. And yet it does unsettle me to then see her grasping it, holding up every other possible standard of perfect pregnancy. It's like she's only allowed one out or something. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mia O'Malley, she went viral for sharing her own pregnancy photos. And she wrote an essay accompanying them. This was, I think, three-ish years ago. She still gets comments and emails from other moms saying, you know, I never even considered taking pregnancy photos because they had so internalized that, like, this was a thin person thing to do. This is like the basketball bump. If you don't have that, your pregnancy is not worth celebrating. Or beautiful or whatever. And so I think what you're saying is true, that the mere fact of representation is really powerful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for someone who reaches such a wide audience who haven't reconsidered their feelings on fatness, you know, who haven't reconsidered their feelings on beauty, and she is asking them to do that. And this is, I'm just like forming this idea as we talk, but it's almost like if a mom disrupts any part of the stereotypical ideal, like Mm -hmm. in this case, she's disrupting like, you know, thinness and whiteness. If any layer of that is being disrupted, I feel like that's a net positive. Yes, I agree with you. But I do think she's also sort of representative of what like Tori was talking about in her email of like, she's not opting out. She's opting all the way in. She's saying, I belong in this room. So there's just this tension there. Well, and I think back to what you were saying before is the responsibility and the onus should be on, you know, white moms with the most layers of privilege for them to opt out. You know what I mean? I think that makes sense. And I agree with you. I think, you know, if anyone's going to be making the big momfluencer bucks off the endorsement deals, like, I'm glad it's Nabella. <laughs> you know? What else do we want to say about Mia? I love her feed. I have followed her for a while. I just love her so much. In addition to her main feed, she has a baby-wearing feed. Ooh. And she became a baby-wearing consultant because when she was pregnant and when she had her newborn, this is, you know, a huge problem across the board in terms of plus-size representation. Every time she was shopping for, like, a baby swing or a baby wrap, it was always modeled on a thin model. Mm -hmm. Did you ever baby-wear? I was really uncomfortable baby-wearing, and size was definitely a factor in that. Right. I didn't baby wear until my third baby because I was just like generally overwhelmed. Like those wraps are like a mile long. They're hard no matter what kind of body you have. But to have a body that's never represented or to not have tutorials that speak to like your particular shape is like a real barrier to entry. And it's not just like, oh, I can't figure out where to wrap this or where to wrap that. Is this even going to work? Is it even going to be safe? 
Yeah, and I do have one fat friend who like came over with her Moby Wrap and really helped me figure it out, and that was very helpful. But I remember envying mothers for whom it felt effortless. It did not feel effortless for me ever. We're making something like baby wearing into something that you're supposed to like innately know and understand how to do with your body at a time when your body is like a complete stranger to you. No, and the baby's a complete stranger. They're very small and squishy. It's very disorienting. Mia also, she's been a huge advocate there. But we also talked about how there's a ton of fat moms and plus size moms who have their community center around creating networks of healthcare providers who don't have anti-fat bias. This is why this world of momfluencing is just so worlds away from the one we talked about last week. I think that is the real like potential and promise of influencers and mom influencers is to help break down these barriers and create like communities that can share information. And yeah, it's happened in fat spaces for a long time. There would be like different fat mom chat groups you could join who would like help you navigate these things. Plus Mommy is another one who's awesome in this space. She does really great advocacy and helping moms sort of know how to questions to ask at prenatal appointments. And she also talks a lot about like being a fat mom going to Disney World or being a fat mom at the playground. And yeah, there's just ways in which our physical spaces are not built for larger bodies very often, and particularly our parenting spaces. I'm looking at who else you linked in this category. Dula KT, she looks very cool. She's new to me. What do you want to tell us about her? She is a doula and a baby-wearing consultant. Love it. Her vibe and tone is just really funny. And I hate using the word (laughs) relatable, but like, just like refreshingly not performative. These photos don't look hyper-stylized. No one art-directed this. It's just like her and her life with her really cute kids. She talks a ton about bodily autonomy in pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting and educates people about self-advocacy and, you know, supporting people in larger bodies going through pregnancy and childbirth. And I wanted to bring up Andrea Landry, who runs the account Indigenous Motherhood. So I was reminded of her because we also chatted for the book. And she was saying that, you know, Indigenous mothers have always sort of created their own communities calling each other and saying like, don't go to this doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to face discrimination and racism at this practice. But since Instagram, that community and that community building just has a way broader reaching impact. Right, right. You can share this information with thousands of people. And so that's where I just think it has like an undeniable potential for good. I agree. And the Thin White Mom Spectre is nowhere on these feeds. These are people in their own communities doing their own stuff. Well, just in terms of looking at issues that maybe white moms should be focusing our attention on more than clean countertops. Mm -hmm. Andrea and I, when we were talking, just... The huge amount of Indigenous children that are placed in foster care that are removed from Indigenous communities, which is just like further colonizing these communities and, you know, preventing them from learning their traditions, their languages. She was saying even up until the early 2000s, their Indigenous women were still experiencing forced sterilization. (sighs) 
in Saskatchewan, they would wake up from C-sections having had hysterectomies without their consent. These things are just still happening. And if we're all in our little like beachy wave momfluencer bubbles, it's not helping us to stay in the bubbles. And it's certainly not helping like the greater motherhood cause. You talked last time about how that bubble erases the labor of motherhood, and it clearly also erases these atrocities happening to mothers. Should we talk about disabled motherhood? So I mentioned Rebecca Tossig. She has really educated me on, again, these structural issues impacting disabled moms Mm -hmm. that non-disabled moms are probably not aware of. In 30 states, there are still discriminatory laws that basically mandate that custody can be removed from a disabled mom just on the basis of their disability. Like not having the burden of proving that there was, you know, neglect or child endangerment or abuse, like just on the basis of the disability. Wow. In 30 states. Wow, this is a great country. I'm really proud. I'm really proud. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. It's so fucking bad. And it's like, it's bad for all moms, but yeah. it is so much fucking worse for marginalized moms. Okay, Danny Izzy. Yes, I'm looking at her. So she has twins. And yeah, a movie is being made, a documentary about her experience. She's really cool. She posts a lot about access in terms of specifically parent-related activities, like inclusive playgrounds. So we should note for folks who don't follow her, she uses a wheelchair and she's parenting twins. There's shots of her like at a playground in her wheelchair with the kids, you know, kind of running alongside. And yeah, of course, like how would you play on most playgrounds with your kids when like the ground is gravel? There's so many ways that that would be instant barriers. Real safety issues. You know, you have to like follow your toddler up the huge curly slide or whatever. I mean, sidebar, I hate playgrounds. Same. Hard same. (laughs) Until my children became old enough to like play independently on them. I just viewed them as like parent punishment. 100%. Um, But I will also fully acknowledge the privilege in that. I didn't want to get up on the slide and do the thing, but I could do it. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, I just discovered her, Casey Davis. She has a book called How to Keep House While Drowning. Okay. I, I love the title. Hard relate, yes. <laughs> and I found her account pretty lightning. She has a post about laundry where she has a bunch of photos of like beautiful laundry rooms. And all she says is laundry is a hobby yes. as well as a task. It just says this is a hobby on top yes. of these beautiful spiled laundry rooms. This is blowing my mind a little bit right now. It's fucking mind blowing. This is really good. It just like points your attention at how much we've internalized that like, yes, it is an actual task that we must do to like keep our family in clean clothes. But we've also, at least I've internalized that it should also fucking look good and like be pretty. (laughs) And like, is that actually going to make the task of laundry more enjoyable? My laundry (sighs) isn't a gross part of my basement. It is not an enjoyable process. But would I be like, it is more delightful to stain treat someone's skid marks if I was in like a room with shiplap? Like what? No, it would still be gross. It would still be gross. Yes, it would still suck. You would still be pissed most of the time. And there's then the added labor of trying to make the room continually look like that photo because it will not because the whole point of a laundry room is to be filled with dirty laundry. So it's never going to look good unless you're not doing laundry in it. I think so much about this. like. 
I'm really into like pretty houses and shit. Same. Like I'm, Same. I, I'm very into it. Yep. But I am constantly thinking about how like it's only pretty if it's clean. And that's only half the battle. The biggest battle is the actual domestic labor. Right. That you have humans in your house using the space. Yes. And fucking the prettiness up constantly. (laughs) With their disgustingness. So her account is Struggle Care. And yeah, she says you do not need aesthetic laundry rooms and chic glass containers to have a valid laundry process. Before people who have beautiful laundry rooms all damn us, like she says, there's nothing wrong with being someone who likes that. Just call it what it is. This is a hobby. It's a fine hobby to have. And again, there's a great parallel here with diet culture because I often think about like fitness in the same terms. Like fitness is a great hobby, but somebody loving to train for triathlons and then having like the quote triathlon body like doesn't make them better than people who don't like to train for triathlons. The sort of weird infusion of hobbies with moral value because they relate to, again, thinness and whiteness. Because, you know, this kind of laundry room personifies a certain kind of mom. That's why we're making it better than other laundry rooms. Totally. With like the privilege of time to Mm -hmm. like savor the laundry or whatever. God, God, (laughs) who wants to savor laundry? I know, I know, I know, I know. I really want to talk about Sia. They identify as queer and non-binary, and their handle is The NB Mama. And they have a lovely, illuminating post about gender dysphoria in regards to breastfeeding. Mm. They talk about how, again, because breastfeeding in our culture is so wrapped up in cis, white, het gender norms and The image of a beautiful white mother, like luxuriating in the beauty of her femininity. And Sia talks about like having really, really complicated feelings about it all. Feeling really good about feeding their child and bonding with their child, but also feeling like they don't fit into this prescribed norm of Mm -hmm. what breastfeeding should look like. Yeah, this is a really important conversation. I think about, too, for non-binary folks going through pregnancy, the importance of communities around that, because the body changes, I would assume, are so often dysmorphia-inducing. But also, you know, you deserve to be just as proud of what your body's doing as anyone else. It's ridiculous that they aren't included in the conversation. Well, and the reason it feels disorienting and not great is because, again, (laughs) of the ideal. Right, right. It's the thin white mom taking up way too much space in this conversation. And I'm also loving all the normalizing the body changes. Like, there's a lot of photos of their belly and their postpartum belly. Yeah, this is very cool. I'm really glad to discover them. When we were talking earlier about disabled mothers losing custody rights, it also reminded me we were going to talk a little bit about School of Good Mothers and process yes. our feelings about that book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're going to try to do it without plot spoilers because people may want to read it, although it's very important to know that you don't have to read it. <laughs> In fact, Sarah read it and wrote a piece about it that I'll link to because it's a great piece. And I was like, oh, I'm reading it right now. And she immediately texted and was like, are you? Do you want to stop reading it? Should you put it down, Virginia? But this was 
very early on when I had COVID and I couldn't get off the couch. And I was like, no, I'm here now. I'm reading it. (laughs) I'm down the rabbit hole. And then I was texting her at like 6 a.m. the next morning when I finished it in tears. So, okay. So there's a lot of trigger warnings about this book. But we wanted to bring it into this conversation because it also kind of articulates a lot of the ways that the standards of white motherhood create these huge disparities and these very real, I mean, it's very real trauma that it's inflicting on all kinds of mothers. Where are you on your emotional journey with the book? If your tolerance for mother-child trauma is low, like right now, (laughs) I can only watch basically like tea and crumpet television. So like if you're in a space like that, maybe like wait a hot second on this book and read it when you're feeling a little a little not tea and crumpety. I would say when the world is better, but I don't know when that will be. Maybe when there's more sun. But yeah, I mean, oh God, it's unfortunately just wait. It hits too close to home. Yeah. Which is part of why it's such a harrowing read. Just the very arbitrary ways we define good mothering, mothering specifically, because I think it's important to note that mothers are held to a different standard than fathers. There is one character who isn't harrowing. I find her hilarious. <laughs> so she has basically like a momfluencer character in the book named Susanna. I mean, she's not a momfluencer, but she follows all the like, you know, essential oil will heal all things. We can explain who she is without running the book. She is the new girlfriend of the ex-husband of the main character. And so when, you know, and you know this from the beginning of the book, the main character loses her parental rights over something very minor. And so her daughter is now being raised by this new girlfriend and the father. And so she's watching her child be parented by a momfluencer, basically. And it's like kind of your worst nightmare. And this doesn't ruin any plot things, but like at one point... This like wellnessy, like culty momfluencer removes carbs yes, from the toddler's diet. Oh, yes. It's, it's, and you're like, who's the child abuser? <laughs> Obviously, it's not good for a two year old to not eat carbs. That's science. And <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, like this woman of color whose parental rights have been terminated over, again, a very minor issue is like watching this happen. And the way, you know, what's powerful about the book that Justin Chin does such a good job of articulating is how the system continually, like, rewards and reinforces Susanna's style of parenting, mm-hmm. even when it is, like, patently bad, like, with the decision around the carbs. And then there's just, like, a totally different set of standards used to measure these mothers of color. And, I mean, the standards are funny in that it's so over the top like the teachers at the school test them on their hugs this is the hug you give when your toddler is having a meltdown about sharing and like is the hug like seven seconds too long or are you doing the bedtime hug like are you communicating the right kind of maternal warmth through this embrace so much in there that comes out of parenting influencers and like the parenting advice that we see on social media i mean You might have to come back and we'll do a whole episode about parenting influencers because the way that positive parenting is pushed on social Mm media. All right, so now it is time for our recommendations, Butter for Your Burnt Toast. And Sarah, why don't you go first? Okay, so I have a tortilla recommendation. Oh, I'm here for this. 
So do you know the podcast Home Cooking with Samin Nosrat? Oh, yes. Yes. It was everyone's so sh- like coping strategy during like, yes. lockdown. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's so, it's so good. Her belly laugh is. I know. So infectious. <laughs> Life-giving. Yes, it totally is. But she recommended these tortillas. Mm. And so I immediately bought them. You put them on like a super hot pan mm-hmm. for 15 seconds. And they balloon up into this crispy, delightful, like salty. It's so good. They're so good. They have pork fat tortillas, duck fat tortillas, and avocado oil, whatever about those. This sounds amazing. I will be getting them immediately. Yeah, I got the duck fat and the avocado oil, but they were both good. They (laughs) They were both so good. Sound amazing. Very here for the tortillas. We do a lot of tacos because it's one of the few meals my family can agree on eating. Most Mm -hmm. nights, some nights. So I would really like to up our tortilla game. I love it. Thank you. I am also going to recommend a food. So as people know, I had COVID by the time this airs, I'm hopefully over it. (laughs) But as we are recording this, I am on day seven and I'm still testing positive. And for the first few days, I like couldn't even move and couldn't do anything. But as the fog began to occasionally lift, I was like, okay, now I need comfort food. So I have to bake something. And we had a bunch of bananas going brown on the kitchen counter. So I made this banana bread recipe. And I mean, oh my goodness, I did not think I had strong opinions about banana bread. I really thought that was a food that you could just like Google any banana bread recipe and it would all turn out the same. Yeah. No, no. This is the best banana bread. It is Smitten Kitchen, which I mean, all her food is so, so good, but... She calls it the ultimate banana bread recipe, and she is correct. Deb is totally right about this one. (laughs) It has this amazing thick crust, and then the inside is, like, still really squishy and gooey. Just make it, guys. Thank me later. It's very easy to make, too. There's not a lot of ingredients. I mean, I made it while still having COVID and, like, not being able to stand for more than, like, 15 minutes at a time. And then I ate it all week, and no one else in my family wanted it, and I was so happy. (laughs) It was good. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this again. This was great. Remind us where we can follow you. Okay. So on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at S Louise Peterson and it's Peterson with an E and yeah, Louise is my middle name. All right. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You'll get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and for supporting independent anti-diet journalism.